Now, according to a recent study by the Barna Group, Gen Z, Generation Z, can be officially dubbed the first post-Christian generation in the history of the United States of America. So if you don't know, Gen Zs are basically those ranging from 10 to 25 years old right now. Those born between 1997 and 2012. Now I'd also clump my generation in there, millennials, those from 26 to around 41 right now, as being among the first post-Christian generations, okay? Now, unlike their parents' generation, Gen Xs and baby boomers, um, these Gen Zs and millennials were not born into a kind of God consciousness, an awareness of Judeo-Christian morality, an impulse to go to church, basic biblical theological literacy, things like that. Their parents and their grandparents were kind of born into that culture. And I know that I'm speaking to many boomers and Gen Xs here this morning. There was kind of a default expectation that you'd be interested in Christianity, that you'd attend church sometimes, that you'd know right from wrong according to the Bible and so forth. Now, we'd expect uh, the kind of religious, orthodox, moral folks, those previous generations, we'd expect them, I think, to be more open to God, to the living God, than the millennials and the Gen Zs, right? But what if I were to tell you, what if I were to tell you that these emerging secular generations, these post-Christian, God-unconscious, pagan generations may sometimes, may be better positioned to detect God's presence than the generations that came before. What if I were to be so audacious as to say that to you this morning? Oh, that's, of course, exactly what I plan to argue uh, in this text in Acts 14. And yes, I did say argue. Um, I have a proposition that I'd like to validate through our text. So this is a a validation sermon. Uh, And of course, I'm biased being part of the millennial generation. Uh, My purpose, friends, is not to guilt you for being part of a certain generation. Really, what I want to do is inspire you, inspire you to think more highly of my fellow millennials and Gen Zs um, to, to recognize that they may be more open to the gospel than you think, okay? Now, in Acts chapter 14, just like in Acts chapter 3, we have an apostle healing a paraplegic man by the power of the Holy Spirit. I try to think back. I think Al Fletcher was the one here to preach that sermon. I think I was in the hospital at Maine Med at that time. Um, Acts 3, the apostle Peter and John, they go to the temple gates in Jerusalem, and there's this 
paraplegic man. He can't use his legs at the temple gate called Beautiful. Remember that? So by the power of the Holy Spirit, you know, Pentecost had just happened, Peter heals this guy. And how did the Jewish religious officials respond? How do the God-conscious, Orthodox, religious Jews respond to that activity of the Holy Spirit? If you don't know, uh, Peter is arrested. He's put in prison. He's locked up. That's Acts chapter 3 and 4. Now, moving far from Jerusalem, far from Jewish territory, to the town of Lystra, this is way north in the hinterlands of Galatia, a Roman province that was kind of rural and rustic and pagan. We see the Apostle Paul encountering a paraplegic man. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul heals him. Now, how do the Lystrans respond to this? How do the God-unconscious, pagan, unorthodox Lystrans respond? (laughs) They respond in an embarrassingly positive way. (laughs) They are so privy to the presence of the divine that they actually think Paul and Barnabas themselves are gods, all right? Couldn't be more different than the response of the Jews before. So you can see where I'm going with this, all right? My purpose, friends, this morning, and in a minute I'll jump into the text, is to convince you, hopefully, that like the Lystrians, these Gen Zs and Millennials, these post-Christians, may be more open to God than you'd think. I implore you, please don't give up on the pagans. Please don't give up on these emerging young people who need Jesus. Now, like I said, we're going to explore this text, so what I will do in a minute is situate it first, Acts 14, in the book of Acts as a whole. Uh, I'll say a few words about the first seven verses of chapter 14, um, but our passage proper is 8 through 18, and I'm going to break that up into three sections, three sections. Um, So first, there's the healing episode, and then the Lystrans respond, and then the apostles respond. So that's what we'll do, and I'll say a few words about what happens after. Um, before concluding with some points of application. Uh, But before we do all of that, uh, would you now just take a moment to pray with me? Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We need you. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, meditations of my heart would be pleasing to you. May this be a worshipful exploration of your word. Give us clarity and emotional sensitivity as we get into this together and uh, make us more like you in the process, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, So I have to apologize to Aaron. Uh, This is actually part two of Paul's first missionary journey. 
Um, just to set it into its context, that's not part of my title. Mike's message is part one. So this is part two. Uh, you can see some lines up there. I'll get to that in a moment. Um, so just to get us up to speed, uh, at the end of Acts 12, Paul and Barnabas ultimately end up in Antioch, uh, where hands are laid on them, and they're launched forth from Antioch on their first mission trip. And you can see those blue lines, Antioch's up in the, I guess, the upper right. They go down to Cyprus and then up to Asia Minor, kind of into the rural regions. And uh, the arrow up top is the town of Lystra. And then ultimately, after some things happen, they will uh, make their way back through the churches they planted, um, back to Antioch. Now you can see the arrow below is Jerusalem. We're pretty far from Jerusalem at this point. Uh, Now just to get us into our passage proper, uh, if you're looking at Acts 14, we've got seven verses before we get to verse 8. There's another town near Lystra up top called Iconium. Iconium was similar to Lystra in terms of its paganness, uh, but there were some Jews at Iconium. And as Paul and Barnabas preached the gospel there, uh, there was a response, a not-so-positive response, and they tried to stone Paul and Barnabas and drag them out of the city. Um, So the apostles catch wind of this, and they flee. They flee from Iconium to the neighboring town of Lystra, which is similar, um, but a little further away, where they continue to preach the gospel. So that's where we're at. If you do have Bibles, friends, would you please turn with me then to Acts 14, starting at verse 8. Acts 14, verse 8. I'll be uh, studying the English Standard Version. All right. Now at Lystra, arrow up top, at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. It says he was crippled from birth and had never walked. I'll stop there. Now can you think, uh, this is kind of cheating because I told you, but can you think of other instances in the New Testament in which we encounter a person like this? who cannot use their legs and is healed. So I did just mention Acts chapter 3. But if you recall, in Luke's first volume, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus is teaching in this house, and there's this paraplegic man on a bed who's lowered down through the roof slats while Jesus is teaching. And Jesus heals this man in front of the religious officials. So in other words, Jesus, Peter, and Paul do the same sorts of things. They all can heal people who have been lame since birth. Now I think what the author is doing here first is validating the ministry of Paul. Okay, He's kind of a newly called apostle. And he's shown to be doing the same sorts of things that the figurehead, Peter, does and that Jesus did before. Now, I think they can all do these sorts of things because they're empowered by the same Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit, friends, is really the actor here. 
not the human apostle Paul. Let's keep going. So it says that this man, verse 9, listened to Paul speaking. And Paul then does a few things. Paul does a few things. Okay. Now, like I said, this is a pretty uh, pagan place. And when I say pagan, I'm not using it pejoratively, but I literally mean someone from the countryside. This is the paganus, the Latin term from which we get pagan. It's actually related to the word peasant. This is a, a rustic, rural country dweller who often followed folk religions that were different according to the regions, okay? So, in these reaches of the Roman Empire, there were these stories of the gods appearing and kind of mingling with human beings. Gods like Zeus, Poseidon, Aphrodite, Hades maybe, those types of gods, Greco-Roman gods. But this was common. This was a common belief that they would appear before you and um, ask for things or tell things to you, that sort of thing. Now, Sometimes the gods were indistinguishable from other human beings. But there were three telltale signs that you were dealing with a divinity at this time, all right? In these stories, the gods first would often stare at you without blinking. Apparently, they didn't need to blink. That's something they would do. Second, these gods would speak very loudly, like I'm doing right now. They would, they would speak with a thundering voice that carried authority. And third, they would issue commands, one of which was the command, arise, which I'm so glad that you enunciated like that, John. Arise before me, that sort of thing. So these stories are swirling around, and those, that's what the gods would do in, in these regions, all right? It says in verse 9 that Paul, the apostle Paul, looked intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, or in Greek, faith to be saved, he spoke in a loud voice, and he said, arise, stand up straight on your feet, and guess what? (laughs) He does. (laughs) This man who had been lame from birth who'd never been healed by the priests of Lystra, is healed by the Apostle Paul at this moment. And Paul exhibits all of the signs of divinity that the Lystrans were familiar with. Okay. Now, how do you think they would respond? (laughs) Having all these legends in their mind... And then seeing this commanding presence, Paul, come in with the divine spirit inside him, doing the things that gods do and successfully healing this man, how do you think they'd respond? Well, in verse 11, we get to section 2, which is the Lystrans' response. Now, it says that when the crowds saw what Paul had done... They, too, lifted up their voices, but in Lyconian, in a language that Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand. And they said, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas, they called Zeus, because he was older, 
probably taller. And Paul, they called Hermes because he was in charge of the message. He was the messenger, the speaker. Okay. Now, first, let me say a few words about the Lyconian language. I mentioned it as I was reading that Paul and Barnabas couldn't understand this. So they didn't hear the blasphemy that had just been uttered, all right? Now, this also, though, I think is meant to suggest that we're not in the metropolis here. We're not in Athens, Ephesus, Jerusalem, Rome. We're in the hinterlands where they have these regional dialects. This is very much a pagan place, according to the worldview of Luke and his readership, all right? Paul and Barnabas don't know what they said, and we're definitely dealing with country pagans here, Lyconian. Now, they say the gods, the gods have come down to us. I told you before that there were stories, common stories, about the gods appearing among human beings. Now, I actually read a story by the Roman poet Ovid. It's kind of clumped in with Virgil and Horace among the Roman poets. He was born in 43 B.C., so he's living right around the time, probably writing, definitely writing before Luke. Ovid writes a story in which Zeus and Hermes appear to this elderly couple, Philemon and Baucis. In Greek, Paul, Barnabas, Philemon, Baucis, almost the same first letter. These gods appear, after appearing to other villagers and not being received well, they appear to this elderly couple, who they're poor and kind of rustic, and they welcome them into their home. They cook them a warm meal, wash their feet, give them a comfy bed. And ultimately, Zeus and Hermes, who had appeared in the story as human beings, they destroy the whole town because of how they were received, but they offer a reward to this elderly couple. Basically say, ask whatever you'd like, since they received them with hospitality uh, and welcome. Uh, now the story, uh, Mike has read it, it's pretty cute. Uh, they ask to be kind of immortalized as trees. So this elderly couple, uh, instead of dying like humans do, they, are, they become trees right next to each other so they can live forever. <laughs> um, now, you can go on and read this, but what's interesting is that this takes place in the Phrygian countryside, which, believe it or not, is the same region as Lystra. So the Lystrians hear these stories about gods appearing, and based on how they're treated, they either destroy you or reward you. Paul has done everything that a god would do, and he's empowered by the divine spirit, and so the villagers, the townspeople of Lystra, they want to honor the gods they think have appeared to them. And I'll tell you, friends, they pull out all the stops in their attempted devotion to Paul and Barnabas. Let's move on. After they'd called, you know, Paul, Hermes, and Barnabas Zeus, the priest of Zeus, in verse 13, whose temple... Here we get another temple, remember Acts 3, paraplegic by the temple, whose temple was by the entrance to the city, brought oxen, plural. These were the biggest animals you could sacrifice. Extremely expensive animals. 
And they didn't have refrigerators, so you got to eat that whole thing right then and there. The whole town had to be invited. Plural, oxen and garlands. These were ornamental wreaths that you decorate the sacrifice. This is elaborate. He brought them to the gates of the city and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. So, in attempt to, to respond in devotion to Paul and Barnabas, the entire town stops what they're doing and is about to engage in a procession and sacrifice to the apostles. So different from the response of the Jews, the Jewish religious officials in Acts chapter 3. So different. Now, um, we get in verse 14, the apostles' response. (laughs) How do they respond to this? So they couldn't understand Lyconian. They didn't know what was said, but now they see what's going on, all right? It says in verse 14 that when they caught wind of it, they did as any faithful Jew would, and they tear their garments and cry out because blasphemy had been uttered, all right? Now, not to confuse this, but uh, there was another person in Acts who was worshipped as a god a couple chapters ago. Uh, But he did not respond this way. He received the praise. This is King Herod. And he was killed and eaten by worms. Paul and Barnabas respond as uh, a faithful Jew should, if being acclaimed as a god, tearing their garments in utter horror and humility and saying, no, stop, we are just men. Well... In verse 15 and spanning to 17, three verses, we get kind of a little sermon, all right? We get Paul's speech into this situation. Um, And just try to put yourself in Paul's shoes here, sandals, whatever. Um, You've got an entire town trying to hold procession, oxen about to be slaughtered, decorated with ornamental wreaths the priest of Zeus presiding, and Paul's trying to give a sermon. He can't include everything. (laughs) So let's jump in. Verse 15, how does Paul respond to this situation? First, in outrage, he says, why are you doing these things? Why are you putting together these elaborate rites and sacrifices for us? We're also men, human beings of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. We're merely the messengers. The news is that you should turn from these vain things, same word you find in Ecclesiastes, these meaningless, empty, pointless rituals, these rituals that have no power to heal paraplegic men, turn from these powerless rights to a living God. First, Paul defines the God of whom he speaks as living. He says nothing about Jesus, the Christ. He's talking about Yahweh, the living God of Israel. First, God is alive, whereas the gods of the Lystrians were not. Now, next, he defines this living God further as the one who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. This is the creator. 
God. Now, to these Lystrans, their gods were attached to various parts of nature and agriculture. You got Poseidon with the sea, Persephone with the harvest, and Zeus was the weather god. What Paul says is, uh, you know, I know that's important to you, of course. Our God is in charge of all of that. He's alive, and He is the Creator. He says in verse 16 that this God of Israel has allowed the nations, this is curious, allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. Seemingly, he's tolerated various religious expression among the nations. Uh, Now, he doesn't seem to tolerate that so much. It says, he did not leave himself, though, without a trace. He didn't leave uh, no evidence of his goodness. He didn't leave you in the dark. But he gave you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, filling you with good things. In other words, Paul doesn't talk about the historical Jesus and his miracles and his crucifixion and his resurrection. Paul shapes his gospel message according to their categories, their values. These were rural folk, farmers, pagans, whose gods had to be associated with agriculture. They had to believe that Zeus wanted them to have full bellies. (laughs) That was important in their religion. Paul doesn't talk about this escape to heaven where we'll float around. He talks about a god who is in control of weather, the harvest, the joy of your heart. He speaks the gospel on their terms, doesn't force them into his own. Well, does it work? Does it work? Just barely, scarcely, the ESV says, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. We don't immediately see droves of disciples being made. Actually, what happens after is the Jews from Iconium and actually Antioch, Pisidian Antioch, they come and successfully stone Paul and drag him out of the city. But he does survive, miraculously. And Paul and Barnabas strengthen the brothers and the churches they had planted and end up back at Antioch. That's how the story ends. Okay. So that's our story in Acts 14. Just to sum up, before in Acts 3, <clears throat> Peter heals a paraplegic man. The Jews put him in jail. In Acts 14, Paul heals the paraplegic man, and the pagans think he's a god. They're so keyed in to the divine in Paul that they try to worship him. By organizing a town-wide procession and sacrifice. Talk about open friends. And we think, like I mentioned before, we think that the religious, the orthodox, those who carry this kind of theological equipment, culture, are more receptive to the presence and movements of God 
than the pagans, the seculars, the having no consciousness of God, those people. That's what we think. But I think according to Acts 14, sometimes we ought to change how we think. Sometimes the pagans, those who are far from orthodox theologically, sometimes the secular, the worldly, are actually more keyed in to the movements of God than others. More keyed in to God's presence than the moral or religious people are. Now to give you a few examples before I close, Christianity Today, not the magazine, Christianity right now is exploding in places that have not been culturally or historically Christian. China, South America, parts of Africa. Another example, uh, among my kind of academic, atheist, humanist, secularist friends, the figure of the historical Jesus is attracting a renewed interest as a worker of social justice, a political figure, an exemplar of morality. People are interested in Jesus, atheists. So I'll say, friends, that millennials, Gen Zs, and the next generation, they are post-Christian. Yes, that's true. But I wonder if that may be for the better sometimes. They don't have baggage that's getting in the way of their perception of God's movements. Pagans, they have potential. I'd encourage you guys, please, all of us, to raise your opinion about pagans. And of course, the pagans today are different from the Lystrans. We would do well to think positively about those generations we want to serve. God loves Gen Z, millennials. We ought to love them too. Preach the gospel to them in terms that they can understand, not in your own terms and categories. They may, like the Lystrans, respond in some pretty unimaginable ways. And to close our time this morning, I truly believe that pagans have potential. Please don't give up on the pagans. Like Paul and Barnabas, who never gave up on the Lystrans, let's recognize the pagan potential. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for this fellowship of persons, for their patience and grace. Pray that you would do a work on all of our hearts. Speak to us this morning. Show us what it is that we need to do in response to your Holy Spirit. Help us to take your gospel to the ends of the earth, geographically and culturally. 
Help us to be used by you in ministering even to the pagans. We love you and praise you now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is Communion Sunday. Um, So we're going to do a quick communion celebration before uh, we jump into worship. So if you don't uh, have, you know, I'll leave this up here for you guys. If you don't have a cup like this, raise your hand. One of the ushers will get one for you. If you do have one, try to find it, locate it. We're going to use it. Um, If any of you know me, you'll know that I'm a nerd, a geek when it comes to ancient Christian literature. So this morning, uh, I'm going to appeal to a document called the Didache, which means the teaching of the 12 apostles. Uh, And it's written in the late first century or the early second. So this is right around the writings of the New Testament. Now, it contains some liturgies and prayers for the early church and gives you a glimpse Uh, into what the earliest Christians were doing. And so I'm going to use some of these words to guide our time in communion. Thou, O Almighty Lord, hast created all things for thine own name's sake. To all men thou hast given meat and drink to enjoy, that they may give thanks to thee. But to us, Thou hast graciously given spiritual meat and drink, together with life eternal through thy servant. Especially and above all do we give thanks to thee for the mightiness of thy power. Glory be to thee forever and ever. The bread. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us eat. We give thanks to Thee, our Father, for the life and knowledge Thou hast made known to us through Thy servant Jesus. Glory be to Thee, world without end. The cup. After supper, Jesus took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Let's drink. We give thanks to thee, our Father, For the holy vine of thy servant David, which thou hast made known to us through thy servant Jesus. Glory be to thee, world without end. As this broken bread 
once dispersed over the hills, was brought together and became one loaf, so may thy church be brought together from the ends of the earth into thy kingdom. Thine is the glory and the power through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you so much for the gospel that was indeed preached to the ends of the earth. That's why we are here. Let us worship you together this morning. We love you and praise you. Guide us in the rest of our time. In Jesus' name, amen. 